This is a story that sets out to ask one simple question. But before we can ask it, I need to give you some background. It's Sunday, December 6th, 1998. A football Sunday in America. A magnificent day for football in the Meadowlands for two teams in the playoff hunt as the Seahawks visit first place New York. The New York Jets were playing host to the Seattle Seahawks. It's late in the NFL season, and both teams were still very much alive in the race to make the playoffs. It was a pivotal game. The Seahawks were leading by five points late in this game. But the Jets, led by quarterback Vinny Testaverde, were driving deep into Seattle territory in the final minute of the fourth quarter. It'll be first and goal on a gain of 11. And three plays later, they faced a fourth and goal from the Seattle five-yard line. This was it. One last play. Empty backfield. Five receivers deployed for Testaverde. Fourth and goal at the five. A touchdown wins it for the Jets, anything less than that, and the Seahawks win. Testaverde scrambles and dives for the end zone. The referees signal touchdown. The Jets won the game 32-31. Except, here's the thing. It wasn't a touchdown. He had a hole straight up the shoot. He almost fumbled. Oh, oh, he didn't get across. The ball did not cross the plane. You see, when they showed the instant replay on television, it was clear that Testaverde didn't get the football into the end zone on the Jets' final play. He was tackled about a half yard short. It was a close call, but it was clear that the football did not break the plane of the end zone. However, the officials ruled it a touchdown, and the Jets won because of it. Now, if you only began following football sometime in this millennium, you're probably asking, so why didn't the call on the field get overturned when they reviewed the instant replay? The answer, the NFL didn't have official replay reviews or coaches' challenges in 1998. And what happened as a result of this game, as a result of this one play, would change the trajectory of the NFL and of all sports. But this really isn't about that game or the NFL or even sports. This is a story about the choices we make and what we think will make us more satisfied, what we think will make us feel safer, and what we think will make us happier. So at the start of this, I said this story was about a question, a question for all of us to reflect on. I admit you may not get where I'm going with this when you hear it, but stay with me. Okay, here's the question. Does surveillance make us happier? It's 2013, and something monumental is about to air on an episode of ABC's hit show, Shark Tank. 
If you're unfamiliar with the show, entrepreneurs and budding small business owners can pitch their product or service to a group of investors, or sharks. If the sharks are interested in the pitch, they in turn can make an offer to invest in the company. So back to the episode. This is a pitch from Jamie Siminoff for a product he calls DoorBot. My name is Jamie Siminoff. I'm from Los Angeles, California. My product is the DoorBot. I'm seeking $700,000 for a 10% stake in the company. Consumers are currently spending billions of dollars outfitting their homes with products that work with smartphones. However, one of the most ubiquitous technologies, the doorbell, has not changed since it was invented in 1880. Until now, introducing the DoorBot, the first ever video doorbell built for the smartphone. With DoorBot, you can see and speak with visitors from anywhere. If this product sounds familiar, it's because there's a great chance it's adorned to the front of your house. Jamie's DoorBot would eventually be rebranded to Ring. The video doorbell was acquired by Amazon in 2018 for more than $1 billion. The company has never released specific sales numbers, but has said it has millions of customers, and they sold about 400,000 doorbells alone this past Christmas season. On their website, Ring says, quote, our mission is simple, make neighborhoods safer, end quote. They call themselves a smart security company. Through the camera in your Ring doorbell, you have the ability to surveil what's happening on your front step every second of every day. The product integrates with other Wi-Fi enabled products, as well as a social media app called Neighbors, where users usually post suspicious activity and crimes taking place in their neighborhoods. Now, the concept of Ring appeals to us at a visceral level. Anyone who's ever opened the door to a stranger or had a package stolen from their front door has invariably thought, I should get a video doorbell. But keep this in mind, because for a moment, let's head back to 1998. Okay, so this phantom touchdown goes down in a Jets-Seahawks game, and because there is no video replay protocol, it erroneously gives New York the victory. Now, I want to emphasize an important point about the story of instant replay and the NFL. The story isn't one of mere evolution. It's not one-day technology advanced to a point where the NFL incorporated video replay reviews in their games. No. Sure, the NFL didn't have video replay in 1998, but it wasn't the dark ages. The NFL actually had an on-again, off-again relationship with video replay review. They first introduced replay reviews in 1986, but the owners had voted to eliminate it in 1992. And replay wasn't something that was a particularly heated topic going into the 1998 season. Nobody was clamoring for it. But then this officiating mistake in the Jets-Seahawks game happens. And it ends up taking place at a precarious apex in that NFL season, at least when it came to officiating blunders. You see, this was the third high-profile officiating mistake in the past 11 days that year. And the previous two instances were in primetime games, so a lot of people saw them. So when this one happened, it was the tipping point. Players, coaches, fans, they wouldn't let it go. They cried out for in-game official instant replay reviews. Media outlets said that officiating had never been worse and video replays will go a long way towards fixing it. The NFL responded. 
1999, the owners pass a video replay review system by a vote of 28 to 3. Okay, I want to distill this argument down to its absolute core. Fans, coaches, players, the argument they're making here is this. We need better surveillance. If plays can be recorded, reviewed, and corrected in-game, it will make game outcomes fairer. And if game outcomes are fairer, we will be happier with the officials at a micro level and with the game itself at a macro level. So, everybody wins. But here's the question. Did it? Did added surveillance help? I hate these shows. I, I, I hate the shows where we're going to sit and talk about the officiating, but there is no choice. Now with the outrage that has continued to grow over that blown call that may have cost the Saints a trip to the Super Bowl. I don't think his crew had the greatest performance. It just piles on to this entire ref crew that the NFL currently has to being the worst officiating crew probably in the history of any sport. Without a doubt. In a word, no. In the NFL, according to the players and the fans, over the past 20 years, officiating has gotten worse. If you search for stories about bad officiating from 1998 into the early to mid-2000s, you'll find an increase in quantity with each passing season. And sure, some of this is due to the rise in media itself in the 21st century, but it's more than that. The volume continues to increase across the board. More online petitions to fire officials. More threatens to boycott the league. More articles that officials are biased against their teams. More op-eds about the future of the sport being in jeopardy. More threatens to take legal action, including two different instances over the past two seasons alone. Sure, the NFL's video replay system wasn't perfect when the league deployed it in 1999, but to their credit, they've continued to tinker with it making major changes in 2004, 2011, and 2019. Each time they expanded it, expanded the flexibility of what coaches can challenge, and expanded the amount that can be reviewed. And guess what? Those clips I played for you from a few moments ago, they were all from 2019, from last year. More surveillance, more than ever before, and we keep getting unhappier with officiating. And I mentioned at the beginning, this is not just an NFL problem. They do have a timeout. Decide not to use it. Curry, way downtown. Bang! Bang! Oh, what a shot for Curry! The NBA followed the NFL's lead and introduced official video replay in 2001 to review last-second shots. They, too, have expanded it through the years. Reviews of flagrant fouls, of three-point shots, 24-second shot clock violations, more and more surveillance. Then, in the 2014-2015 season, the NBA rolled out a new state-of-the-art replay command center, based in New Jersey, equipped with 94 HD monitors, 20 workstations, and 15 NBA referees that consult in real-time with officials during games when an instant replay is triggered. Consider for a moment the sheer magnitude of this new service. Plays can be slowed down in ultra-high def, with no less than a dozen highly trained decision makers weighing in on key moments in the closing minutes of a basketball game. This was a multi-million dollar expenditure to adjudicate fairness. Again, more surveillance. So how's it working? I'll just ask the players. They think officiating has never been worse. 
In a 2019 survey, NBA players viewed officiating as the biggest problem facing the league. And the results weren't close. Officiating doubled the next biggest crisis on the survey. Now, you may be asking yourself, well, is officiating actually getting worse? And the answer is, of course not. The leagues go through an extensive audit and review process every season. As of 2018, the NBA was hovering between 93 and 95% accuracy on all calls and non-calls officials make. The NFL refs around 95% as well. So why do we think it's getting worse? Why isn't more video replay making us happy? The answer, I think, has to do with how our mind works. Our brains effectively have two mental operating systems, an experiencing self and a remembering self. This is the belief of Daniel Kahneman, a psychologist who received the Nobel Prize in 2002 for his work in decision-making. The experiencing self is the you in the moment. It's the you in the here and now. It's the one living through the events. It's you listening to me say this sentence in this podcast. But when this podcast is over, how many words will you remember from it? And as the day, the week, the month progresses, will you remember it at all? According to Kahneman, our psychologically present self lasts for only about three seconds. Which means in a month alone, there are 600,000 individual moments that whiz by you. And of course, most of them come and go without a trace. This is why the other mental operating system is so important. Kahneman calls this one the remembering self. That's the one that writes your history books. That's the self that tells you what's happened before in your life and what it means. This is the one that guides your future choices and shapes your opinions. Your experiencing self hates working in a cubicle, but your remembering self is cognizant of the home you have or the vacation you want to take someday. So in the moment, you don't just quit your job. Now, let's suppose I ask you, tell me your memories of eating ice cream. There are probably very few actual memories you can recount for me. But if you're like most people, you probably like ice cream. The hundreds or thousands of mostly positive interactions you've had with it has shaped your opinion, even though you don't actually remember many of them. This is both the blessing and curse of memory, and of our remembering self. It's a pretty unreliable narrator. We like to think our memory is taking photographs, or even rolling a camera, but it's not. We can't possibly remember every detail, so our minds sort of fill in the empty spaces, the patches between, and we often don't realize how easily these memories are influenced. In one famous study, participants had to keep their hand submerged in painfully cold water for three different trial periods. The first one lasted 60 seconds. The second one lasted 90 seconds, but for the final 30 seconds, the water was slowly warmed, something like one degree per second. It was still uncomfortable at the end of those 90 seconds, but not as bad as it was to start. And when researchers gave the participants a choice for the final trial, they could choose the 60 second or 90 second version for their final period, the overwhelming majority chose the 90 second version. This makes no sense, right? That version of the trial has the same awful 60 seconds to start. And it goes a full 30 seconds longer. But because the experience isn't quite as bad at the end, we don't remember it being as bad. This is called 
negativity bias. The notion that things of a negative nature have more influence over us, take a foothold in our mind over things of a neutral or positive nature. And this is why I think more instant replay is making us unhappier. Think of the experience of watching a typical football game. How many plays do you actually remember? Most likely only the highlights, the scoring plays, the turnovers, the key moments. But over the past 20 years, we've continued to ratchet up the amount of time we spend obsessing over video replays. We've slowed the game down because of it. And now we catch everything that ever happens because we've added more and more cameras. Pylon cameras, overhead cameras, more and more surveillance. And all these cameras, all these replays, they're bound to catch more details. More things that we wouldn't have normally seen, stopped, and obsessed over. And because the official replay reviews, by and large, take place during critical, close moments, and largely towards the end of the game, we're remembering them more. They stick out as moments for our remembering self to flag. Look, referees are human. They're bound to make mistakes. But when they're battling two dozen cameras and 94 ultra-high-definition monitors, and an increasingly widening pool of things that can be reviewed, those mistakes will continue to be highlighted. And then our negativity bias kicks in, and a game that may have been flawlessly officiated save for one or two plays is labeled a terribly officiated game by our remembering selves. The referees aren't different. Heck, according to the leagues, they're objectively better than they used to be. But the surveillance has increased. And the more we see, the more footage we slow down, the more minute details we parse, the less satisfied we become. Here, listen to Marcus Spears, a retired NFL defensive lineman. This is what he said after a Lions-Packers game last season, when the public was outraged about what they perceived to be a critical officiating blunder. This has been happening in the NFL. And now the whole response to it is because replay was implemented. So everybody expects every single call to be right. Are there remedies? Absolutely. But when I was playing in the league, they miss calls like this all the time. And nobody was outraged about it. The, the league, the referees put themselves in this position to be highly scrutinized because they decided to review and replay certain plays. This is the paradox of video replay. It was sent in to make our lives better, but it makes us feel worse. And the more we add to it, the worse we feel about it. Okay, let's head back to the Ring doorbell. To me, the Ring doorbell is selling two things, peace and peace of mind. Peace in that their mission is to make your neighborhood safer through surveillance. And peace of mind in that with a camera on the outside of your home, you have the ability to monitor everything that ever happens outside of your front door without ever opening it. But does it? Does this surveillance make us safer? And does it make us feel safer? According to a 2018 report by MIT, well, the jury is still out on whether it actually makes neighborhoods safer. When Amazon acquired Ring, it had announced that a 2015 Los Angeles Police Department pilot program had reduced crime in neighborhoods by 55% over a period of seven months. But in that pilot program, it's estimated only 40 doorbells were installed. 40, hardly a representative or significant sample. So MIT dug into crime reports, and they found that those same neighborhoods, 
equipped with at least the same if not many more doorbells since that study took place, had more burglaries in 2017 than they had in any of the previous seven years. So Ring tries again, early in 2018, to conduct a study. They piloted 500 video doorbells in two neighborhoods in Newark, New Jersey. And crime did decrease in those neighborhoods by 50%. But other parts of the city outside of those pilot neighborhoods saw as much as a 65% drop in crime over the same period. In fact, by the end of the year, the entire city experienced a 30% decline in burglaries, with the biggest improvements taking place outside of those neighborhoods. Okay, even if some of the ring security data is inconclusive, let's move on to the next and perhaps more important selling point. Do ring doorbells make you feel safer? Well, if you have one, I want you to really reflect on that question. Because my take of it is we've swapped some convenience in return for more anxiety and generally a less satisfied view of the security in our neighborhoods. Sure, those moments when you're upstairs or you're not home and the ring doorbell alert goes off and you can talk to the person through your smartphone or track a package delivery, that's great. But what have we traded that for? Now, every ring alert, every demonstrative, there is motion at your front door, it sort of reads as, there's an enemy at the gate. The innocuous car that uses your driveway to turn around, all of a sudden that seems like a suspicious vehicle. The solicitor selling solar panels now reads like a burglar checking to see if you're home or not so they can break in. The grainy overnight pictures of someone outside your house maybe stopped for a moment because who knows why, on their walk or something, all of a sudden these moments feel more threatening. Why did he stop in front of my house? What's he doing? And we wouldn't have known about any of them if it weren't for constant video replay. Cameras. Everywhere. Every detail parsed. And then social media apps like Neighbors just throw fuel on the fire and the minutia of day-to-day -day suburbia becomes video footage that triggers mob mentality. More and more footage to obsess over, to analyze, to make us feel, well, decidedly less safe. Does surveillance make us happy? So look, I'm not saying don't buy a Ring video doorbell, and I'm not saying the NFL should stop innovating and use a couple of low-definition cameras with no instant replay to cover football games. My point here isn't about the products, it's more about how we react to them. And it's something I think we should contemplate as technology becomes an ever greater complement to the human experience. Our minds aren't video cameras, our memories, our remembering selves. We don't operate with military-like decision-making, every past detail precise and pristine. We're unreliable narrators. We're influenced by heuristics like negativity bias. So when we keep substituting the imperfect for the perfect, when we keep putting more and more of our world in front of a camera, only to parse and break apart every slivering detail, we're bound to catch more, more red flags. And our minds assign more weight to those red flags, and we end up feeling less satisfied. We feel worse. But then we think the solution is to develop more systems to find more red flags. Which it isn't. The solution instead is to accept that humans aren't perfect. To understand how our mind leads us astray. To understand how we're easily influenced. In the not-so-distant future, much of our lives may be lived in front of a camera. But that won't make us any more perfect. 
Hey, this is David Giardino. Thanks for listening. If you liked this podcast, subscribing would be a big help. And if you're in an extra generous mood, rating it in your local app store can also make a big difference. Thanks.